Thanks, guys. I, I told the early service that quartets are for men, trios are for women. So I like this quartet this morning. I, I guess it could go either way, but you guys did a great job. Thanks for reminding us that we shall rise. And we're going to cover that a little bit in our text today. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at the next few verses here of where Christ is giving his famous sermon on being the bread of life. So this morning, we're going to look at John chapter 6, verses 40 through 44. And I've entitled this morning's message as The Clarity of Christ. Now, if you look at verse 40 down to verse 44, I'll read our text for us and then we'll just jump into our time together this morning. Here's what we read this is Jesus speaking, and he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the opportunity to continue to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ as he describes what it means to be the bread of life and what it means for him to raise us up on that last day and what it means exactly for him to draw us to himself. And so I pray as we look at this text today that we would see your clarity, that we would be encouraged with your truth, and that we would be filled today with a better understanding of how to apply these things in our everyday lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, theology is clearly seen in the mind of God. Theology is also clearly described through Scripture, but somehow when it comes to us, sometimes theology is as clear as mud. We still struggle sometimes understanding what it is that the Bible's saying. And I'd like to ask, well, why is that? If it's clear in the mind of God and it's clear in Scripture, why do we sometimes struggle? Could it be a lack of intellect where some people are just unable to grasp spiritual truths? Uh, Could it be a lack of interest where some of us are so distracted with the entertainment of this world that we don't really focus on the Word of God? Uh, Could it be a lack of desire? to really know what it is that God wants us to know about him and his ways and his word? Could it be that there are so many other religions that we get a little bit shy about the fact that the one that you believe in is the true uh, faith that, uh, that, uh, that alone can save sinners from their sin, right? Could it be that we are intimidated, that if we've never been to Bible college or you've never studied Greek, that somehow you'll never have clarity in your mind of what the scripture is saying? And while I think that all of these things play a part, I would say to you that at the heart of the matter, the problem of understanding theology could be boiled down to one of two things. Number one, you're lost. Number two, you're lazy. So if you're lost this morning, you'll never be able to understand the clarity of God's word because your mind has been affected by sin. And it's only by the grace of God that you can be called out of darkness into light where you can be enlightened by the Holy Spirit to actually comprehend what it is that the Bible's saying. So if you're lost this morning, you'll never be a good theologian and the scriptures will always be muddy to you. So if it's not that one, if it's not that you're lost, you're maybe sitting here and you're like, well, Adam, I'm not lost. Well, that means you're the other one. You're lazy. I know that sounds kind of mean, but at the end of the day, you're not digging into the word of God. In today's world, you have a number of tools that could help you, whether it be a commentary, a lexicon, whether it be uh, listening to good preaching or good Bible teaching via podcast or some other source. Now, you have to be discerning who you're listening to, but as long as who you're listening to is teaching the Word of God and teaching us how to understand the Word of God, it should be somewhat clear. Uh, Let me just say the obvious here. God's word is clear. Jesus's teaching is unambiguous and every believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit who enlightens us to an accurate understanding of the word of God. And all of this points to what theologians call the doctrine of clarity or perspicuity of scripture. 
The perspicuity of Scripture simply means that those teachings which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly explained in the Bible that both the educated and the uneducated alike can understand them. Again, it takes the quickening of the Holy Spirit to regenerate a heart and to renew a mind so that what is written in Scripture can be and will be understood by every true believer. And all that to say that what Christ is teaching us here in John chapter 6 is perfectly clear. There is no confusion. There should be no scratching of the head. There is no doubt as to what Jesus wants us to understand. This isn't calculus class. This isn't organic chemistry. This isn't quantum physics. Thank God, or some of us would be in trouble, right? But the Bible says that it's faith like a child, that it's not about being super high in your IQ that enables you to understand the things of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit of God to open up the heart of every man, woman, boy, and child from any culture, any background, any literacy, that if they're exposed to the Word of God, can and will be converted by it if they're His if they're drawn into a relationship with him. And as we've been studying here in John chapter 6, we've been reminded that all that the Father gives to the Son will come to him, and none of them will ever be cast out. We've been looking at Jesus' famous quote that, I am the bread of life, where he is claiming to be the true bread of God, which has come down from heaven. We've been learning how Jesus came to do his Father's will and that it was the will of the Father that all that the Father has given to the Son will come to him. It is the will of the Father that the Son should lose nothing of all that was given to him and that he would raise them up on the last day. And at no point in Jesus' sermon has he been unclear. At no point in his sermon does he mince words. At no point has he been vague or hard to understand or unintelligible. Jesus is the epitome of perspicuity. Jesus is comprehensible, he is uncomplicated, and he is crystal clear. And so as we look at John 6, verses 40 through 44, I want to show you three clear-cut truths as we benefit from the clarity of Christ. Here's number one, just kind of picking up where we left off last week. Jesus will raise up all those who believed in him. There in verse 40, we read again, Jesus says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And so let's talk about that this morning. As you see your first blank there, what does it mean to look on the son and believe in him? Notice how verse 40, Jesus says, everyone who looks on and believes in him. In order for you to be raised up on the last day, you must both look on the son and believe in him. And this is an important statement because there is a difference between looking on and believing in. To look on the son simply means to see him, to observe him. Many people can look on the sun without believing in the sun. Many people can be familiar with the facts of the sun, but never be transformed by the sun. Many would say that they know Jesus, but they're still living in their sin and there's been no heart change. And so not only is it looking on the sun to be aware and to observe what he's saying, but it's also, Christ says, to believe in now, I want to just point out that that word in is got the idea of being into, can be translated as in or into. It's a preposition. It's used regularly throughout the Bible. But I'd like to suggest to you this morning that when you read the word in, sometimes it may have a little bit more emphasis if you read it as into. Think about it. Jesus says it's everyone who looks on the sun and believes into him. There's a difference, again, between looking on and getting into. It would be like if you were to take a flight. Some of you may have thought about going to Houston on that uh, trip to help out with the hurricane victims, right? And it would be one thing that if you were to go to the airport and you book your flight and you're flying with Southwest or Delta or United, whatever your airline of choice is, and you get through security and you look out the window and you see the plane right there at the gate, that's looking on the plane. 
But you could look on the plane all day long and it's not going to get you to Houston, right? You got to get into the plane in order for the plane to now take you from point A to point B. And in a similar way, I believe that what Jesus is saying here is it's not only looking upon him, but it's believing into him. My friends, believing in Jesus is getting into that airplane. Believing in Christ is getting into the boat. Believing in Christ is being completely in. You can't be halfway in. You can't have one foot on the plane and one foot on the runway for at one point you're going to be left behind, right? So you have to be all the way in. And Jesus is teaching this throughout the gospel of John. He says in John 1 verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed into his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. And so it's God's desire that you get into this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we talked last week how the theme verse of First John, the epistle at the end of your Bible, where John writes this, he says, I write these things to you who believe in, or we could say into, the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. God does not desire for a single one of his sheep or his children to doubt whether or not they're saved, or to have an uncertainty about whether or not they're saved, or to lack assurance about whether or not they're saved. God desires every single one of his children adopted into his family to know for a fact that you belong to him. I mean, think about it. How would you feel as a child if you didn't really know if you belong to your mom or dad or not? How would that make you live your life if at any given moment of even given day, your parents could disown you, or you might find out you really don't belong to them? And so the idea here is that you must look on the Son of God and believe into the Son of God. And when you do that, God will preserve you until the very end. He will not let you ultimately fall away. He will not let you stumble past the point of no return. God will finish what he started. You are his. You are secure in him. It's Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it unto what? Completion. That's his work. That's his job. You come in by faith. He secures you until that very last day. And so this doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that you're made perfect in Christ. And once he saves you, you are fully justified, fully forgiven, and fully transformed into a child of God. Now, last week, we talked about how many of us struggle from time to time with having assurance of our salvation. And I cautioned you about looking at your own life as the primary means of salvation. Last week, we simply stated this, looking to Christ and believing in him and the truths of God's word, taking God at his word, must be your primary assurance. Examining your own life, like the Bible tells us to in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. First John does mention that these are the characteristics of a believer, and that's healthy, and that's good, and that's biblical, but that only provides secondary assurance. If you ever switch the two, you'll live a lifetime of not knowing if you're saved or not. Because as long as you're looking at your own life for primary assurance, your own life will never measure up. There'll always be a sin. There'll always be a struggle. There'll always be a doubt. Because on this side of eternity, you can't know for sure by looking at yourself. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's Romans 8, 16 that says the Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit that you're his. And the only way that you can have full confidence is understanding these doctrines of grace or of salvation, that it's all a work of God. You know, even when we sing songs of of worship, we don't sing songs to stir our hearts about our own obedience. We don't sing songs of assurance saying, Oh, Lord, now that I obeyed you all week, I am saved because I am awesome. I mean, we don't sing like that, right? We sing songs about the cross. We sing songs about the death of Christ. We sing songs about the resurrection of Christ. We sing songs about the theology of the Bible that tells us that we're secure when we put our faith and trust, not in ourselves, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today and you're coming to Christ alone and believing in him alone, then you will 
have eternal life. And this means that on that last day, you will be raised to newness of life. So we're talking here again about the doctrine of eternal security or even the perseverance of the saints. And so this kind of leads us to our second question here, which is this, when is the last day? Jesus says here in verse 40, and I will raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 44 at the very end. It says, I will raise him up on the last day. Look at verse 54. The very last line says, I will raise him up on the last day. The question, when is the last day? Well, I believe that the last day refers to the rapture of the church. That at any moment, at any time, Christ could come back, take up those who were dead in Christ first, and then those who were alive will also meet him in the air. It's First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, where we read that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, I understand that when we talk about eschatology, there are those who believe in a rapture and those who believe in a second coming, and it can get a little bit uh, challenging to explain all that, and I, I don't, this is not a message on eschatology, but let me just simply say this, that last day is when Jesus comes back. So whether you see that as the rapture or whether you see that as the second coming, when he comes, you will be taken up to be with him. And so what he's saying is you're secure, your salvation is secure till the very last day. Whether that's when you die or when Christ comes back, you're secure if you're in Christ. It's already set in stone from eternity past that if God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, you will be his you will not be able to break the golden chain of redemption. It is determined. Of course, at some point in this life, you will repent, you will believe, and you will bow the knee to Christ. But that can only be done if God in heaven is at work in your life to draw you to himself. And so this leads us to our third question under this first heading is this, why do some people who seem to be saved fall away? Why do some fall away? If, if you're saying that you know, if you're really in him and you've, you've come to Christ, that you're secure, then how come sometimes we notice people who have made a profession of faith and even been baptized and even taught the Bible, pastors included, who eventually fall away? What are we to think of that person? Were they ever saved? Did they lose their salvation? Uh, how are we to understand this? Well, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, which I believe is the best single verse in the Bible to just state it super clear. 1 John chapter 2, 19, what are we to think of those who fall away? If we thought they were saved, somebody you know said a sinner's prayer. Somebody you know walked an aisle. Somebody you know they got baptized. Somebody you know who told you about Christ, and then later in life they walked away. What's up with that? 1 John two nineteen. we read this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. You kind of see it there in the text. It's just kind of crystal clear. Again, the idea is that there's some people who act like they're part of us. They act like they're in the church. They act like they're in the believing body of Christ. And yet if they ever go away and renounce the gospel, either with their words or with their lifestyle, that's what's key. Because a lot of people who walk away, they still claim to be Christians. But if you examine their unrepentant lifestyle, it will demonstrate that there's no genuine conversion in their soul because they're living like the devil and they've never really been transformed into the image of Christ. And so if anybody walks away, either with their words, some people who walk away will denounce Christ. They will say, I do not believe in Christ. I never really have. I was faking it the whole time, and now I'm leaving the church. Well, that one's crystal clear, right? The one that gets confusing is people say, well, I'm still a Christian, and they're sleeping around. I'm still a Christian, and they're living in clear, unrepentant sin. Well, I'm still, well who are you to tell me? Well, look, the Bible says if you walk out away from us, and your life is not one that honors Christ, again, the idea here would be habitually and unrepentantly, not for those of us 
who stumble every day, which is all of us as Christians, right? But we repent, we confess our sins, we grow in Christ-likeness. It's a daily occurrence, right? But there's a difference between that and those who defect either with their mindset or with the way that they act and the way they live this world. If they go away, they will not be part of the kingdom of heaven because they were never genuinely saved. Or another way to say it, if you want, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. Here are two other key texts that describe this idea of those who fall away. How is it that we're to think of them? Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews, starting in verse 4, says this, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Here's what this text is saying. There's a lot of people who on the outside, it seemed like they were enlightened. It seemed like they had tasted the heavenly gift. It seemed like they had shared in the Holy Spirit. And maybe they're benefiting by some degree from common grace. It seemed like they did taste the goodness of the word of God. It seemed like that they were aware of all this stuff. But verse 6 says, if they fall away, it's impossible. Verse 4, it's impossible if they fall away to restore them again to repentance. And so the idea here is you can't lose your salvation, gain it back, lose your salvation, gain it back. That's what the Nazarenes teach. There's a denomination in America called the, the Nazarite Church, right? They would teach you could lose your salvation, gain it back. That's, that's not what this text is saying. It's saying it's actually impossible to do that. Why? Because you're either saved or you're lost. And if you ever walk away from Christ, then you were never really saved. If you do come back, there could be a period of, I guess, backsliding or whatever, but you never truly lost your salvation. You were maybe going through a season of struggle, which does happen. But I think that more times than not, if that season of struggle is like, you know, years of, of, of crazy, unrepentant sin, that it's probably more likely you got saved over here than you did before that. But, you know, at the end of the day, only God ultimately knows. But we do know these texts out of 1 John two nineteen, Hebrews 6. Now look at Hebrews 10. All of these texts warn us of, as Christians about how to understand the fact that we really never can fall away. I mean, listen to how he says it in Hebrews ten twenty six. For if we go on sinning deliberately. Now, make sure you understand deliberately. The idea is not if you struggle and slip up and fall or maybe even sin on purpose once in a while because of, because of your struggle. But this is saying if really what characterizes your whole life is that you on purpose all the time are deliberately um, sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Again, the writer in Hebrews is giving a warning to believers saying, listen to me, if you go out there and deliberately sin on and on and on again, it may be at some point you're past the point of God's grace. And you say, well, how could that be? And, and all I'm saying is, well, just remember that God determines beforehand who will be his and who will not be his. He will give mercy to whom he will give mercy, and he will give compassion to whom he will give compassion, Romans 9. So if somebody has been exposed to a great deal of truth, it could be that in that moment, God's going, already pronouncing them as this person's beyond us, like Esau who cried for repentance, but it wasn't offered him. He'd already shown his true colors. Some would equate this passage with the unpardonable sin of Matthew 12, 31, where basically Jesus teaches, if you've been exposed to all that the Spirit of God reveals to an individual about Christ and yet walk away and attribute Christ's work to the devil, it could be that you've committed the unpardonable sin, which is beyond ever being saved again. Now, again, that could also be debated whether or not that could only happen at that time of the first century when Jesus taught that, or if it could happen today. Uh, but the, the most important thing to think about is this. If you're his, you're his. If you're not, you never were. And these texts warn us not to live in deliberate ongoing, unrepentant sin, because if we have, if we have a lifestyle like that, and that's what we're doing, then all we should really expect is judgment and a fury of fire to consume the adversaries of the Lord. 
And so this is what we're learning here. The idea is that if you're saved, you're secure forever. If you're not saved, you've never been saved. We need to be discerning about what are we putting our faith in? Are we getting into Christ or are we just trying to live on the peripheral? I appreciate what Spurgeon has to write here about the assurance of salvation. He writes this, quote, beware, I pray thee of presuming that you are saved. If your heart be renewed, if you shall hate the things that you did once love and love the things that you did once hate, if you have really repented, if there be a thorough change of mind in you, if you be born again, then you have reason to rejoice. But if there be no vital change, no inward godliness, if there be no love to God, no prayer, no work of the Holy Spirit, then you are saying, I am saved, is but your own assertion. And it may delude, but it will not deliver you. So in other words, you've got to put into context, if you say you're saved, do you see your life being transformed? And is your primary assurance coming from Christ? If you aren't walking with Christ, then it could be that you're in a delusion thinking that you're saved and you say you know him, but there's absolutely no fruit, no passion, no being consumed with the glory of God. You feel like spirituality is a drag. You never read your Bible. You never repent. You don't even really care about Christ. And if that's you today, then I believe that you know who you are, that in your heart of hearts, you know you're playing a game. And I'm calling you this day to come to Christ. I'm calling you out of your religious external activism, and I'm calling you to come into a spiritual relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he saves you, he transforms you. And you can't help but to want to praise him, to follow him, and to obey him because he owns your life. And when he got a hold of your life, he'll never let go. And he will raise you up on that last day. And you never have to worry. And you never have to doubt your assurance. And you never have to be skeptical of the power of God. And so I think it's important for us as a church to be blessed and encouraged by this sermon of Christ out of John 6 as we see the clear teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me just move on to our second point this morning. Number two, we're looking at three clear-cut truths from the lips of Jesus. The second one is this, Jesus confronts the Jews in their unbelief. He does confront them right uh, right, right at the point of attack here. Uh, a, your next uh, subpoint says this, the Jews grumbled about Jesus' claim. Now, Jesus, again, is claiming to be from God, the bread that came down from heaven. And then all of a sudden we read here in verse 41 that they're grumbling about it. So the Jews grumbled about him because they said, I am, because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. So basically what we see here is the Jews don't want to believe in Jesus. They're grumbling about it. This word means to grumble, to murmur, to disapprove in an unintelligible way. It's like muttering something under your breath. The word here is actually a word of onomatopoeia, which means it sounds like what it is that it communicates, like the word cuckoo or meow or honk. There's certain words you say, and it says like it kind of sounds like it's spelled. And so this particular word is the word goguzo, and it just simply means again this idea of expressing discontent or complaint. The Jews simply did not like or agree with Jesus's claim to be the bread of life. And so they grumble about it. And we see this all through the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where the unbelieving Israelites complain and grumble time and time again, right? All these passages are listed for you in Exodus 15 and in Leviticus. These people grumbled against Moses. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They grumbled against the Lord. And basically, as you read through all of those texts there, if you want to go do a little study there sometime, you realize these are unbelievers, Every time he's talking about the nation of Israel that's grumbling and arguing against Moses, this is part of the generation that was never truly saved. In the New Testament, we're also commanded by imperative of the New Testament, do all things, Philippians 2.14, without grumbling or disputing. James 5 verse 9, do not grumble against one another. 1 Peter 4 verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You know what that means? That means grumbling is a sin. Anywhere in the New Testament when it says, don't do this, 
and you turn around and do exactly the opposite of what the imperative said, you're now in sin. And so the Bible challenges you and I to be Christians who don't grumble and we don't argue and we don't complain and we don't whine about it. It's a sin. It's a serious sin. And I think it's one of the sins that is considered to be excused in the church today because we, it just comes so naturally to us. Well, I didn't really like the worship this morning. You know, they didn't even have a drummer up there. You know, well, I didn't really like, you know, that, that, that quartet. You know, I could have sang that bass line way better. You know, well, I don't really like the, uh, giving, a giving app at church. Do they just want my money? What is wrong with this church? You know, it's like people fall into that just like this all day long. And it's only the Spirit of God that can stop you and say, you know, I'm thankful for my church. I'm thankful for my mom and dad. I'm thankful for our elder team. I'm thankful for the, for the people that God's put in my life because they're actually instruments in the Redeemer's hands that are helping me grow and change to be more like Jesus. And it's every time that you think about grumbling or complaining about work or about the traffic or about whatever it is that you face in your life, in that moment, you should just stop and say, God, thank you. Thank you that I'm late to work today because it's given me an opportunity to grow in grace and godliness even if I get fired. You know, it's like, I'm thankful, Lord, because whatever's happening, if it's out of my control, right, then, then I'm going to trust that you're up to something good. So God, don't let me be a complainer or a grumbler. And some people just complain and grumble about things, like uh, all the stuff I just mentioned, and some grumble and complain about theology. They don't like what the Bible says. Just this week, if you happen to listen to Al Mohler on the briefing, he talked about how Archbishop Desmond Tutu is a retired Archbishop in the Anglican Church in South Africa. He's actually received a Nobel Prize. He made a statement back in 2013 that he did not want to go to heaven if it was described as being homophobic. Now again, just to define his terms, he was saying that if homosexuality and the entire array of LGBT issues and affections and behaviors is not going to be celebrated in heaven, then he doesn't want to go there. He said, no, I would say sorry. I mean, I would much rather go to the other place. He went on to say, I would not worship a God who is homophobic, and that is how deeply I feel about this, close quote. You know what he's doing? He's grumbling and complaining about what the Word of God has to say about what is right and wrong. And at any point, if we begin to grumble or complain, just because it's not popular, just because I don't understand from my vantage point, just because, you know, I think that's an ancient, you know, a book and doesn't really have precedent in today's modern uh, social life that we live, then we begin to argue and complain about the Word of God. Let me encourage you this morning, never argue, never complain, about Jesus Christ who died for your sin and never argue and never complain about his word and how his word tells us to live our life. Because if you do, Jesus is aware and it takes him about this long to confront these unbelieving Jews with their sin. And what is their sin exactly? Well, their sin, as your next blank says, the Jews did not believe in his divinity. Notice how they're complaining about the fact they can't believe Jesus said he came down from heaven. We've discussed that to a great degree. So that's what they're complaining about. But they're also complaining about your next blank says the Jews did not believe in the virgin birth. They did not believe in it. They, they, they even say here as they're grumbling and complaining, verse 42, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say that I have come down from heaven? So they're complaining about his divinity. The fact that he came down from heaven means that he was already with God. And they're complaining about the virgin birth, even though Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, couldn't be more clear that the Lord said, I'll give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. They're in Luke chapter 1, fulfillment of that prophecy. And yet they continue to argue and complain against Christ, against his teaching, against these truths, and they could not bring themselves to submit to him and to follow him as Lord. This is exactly why Jesus came, though. He came to do things his way and not our way. He came to show us the light instead of allow us to continue to walk in darkness. He came to set us free from ourselves and our thinking, and he came to do the Father's will. And the Father's will is that he would reveal himself to those that are his and draw us to himself. And then we see your next blank just says the Jews murmured, 
Here it is. I can't even get it out. The Jews murmured among themselves. Same word as grumbling, murmured, grumbling. The idea, again, that when Jesus calls them out, I appreciate this because Jesus doesn't allow them to keep doing that. You know how sometimes it is if your kid's kind of whining around the house or something and you just try to ignore it, you try to ignore it. Well, at some point, you've got to call them out. You have to say, listen to me, you can't keep talking like that. And you should do it in a kind, loving way. But Jesus, I, I, I appreciate what we're seeing here. Jesus tells them to stop. Jesus does call out sin. And I think there's an example here that as Christians, we don't just let everything go. When somebody's arguing or complaining against God, we have a responsibility to call them out. If somebody is a false teacher, I was just listening last night to Shylin's uh, album. Maybe you've heard about how you're a false teacher. For, the, for those of you who are 20 and below, you know what I'm talking about. But the idea is he goes through a list of false teachers. He's a Christian rapper in the, in the vein of Lecrae, and he's got a very clear view of false teachers being those who preach any other gospel other than the gospel of Christ alone. And in there, he starts naming all the big false teachers in America. And you got to appreciate the fact he's just calling them out and he's naming them by name and say, you're a false teacher. And he's naming them by name and saying, you're a false teacher. And I was just, you know, some people don't like that. They're like, who does he think he is? And some people can't stand, you know, Pastor John MacArthur because he's known for doing that. And they're like, I can't stand that guy. He's so arrogant. Well, look, this is what Jesus does. He looks at unbelievers and says, you hypocrite, you're of your father, the devil. It is our job as, as a Christians to, when it's crystal clear about what is truth and what is error, to call people out. Now, of course, you can do it in love. You can do it kindly. I'm not saying you should be, uh, you know, just ridiculously unkind, but I think the kindest thing you could do is speak the truth. And so here is what Jesus is doing here in this passage. And this leads us to our third heading this morning, number three. Let me talk to you uh, for the rest of our time on this one verse, verse 44, where Jesus is now teaching on sovereign grace. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, when I say the word sovereign grace, I'm referring to the doctrines of grace. I'm referring to classical reformed Calvinism. I'm referring to the acronym TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, limited atonement, perseverance of the saints. I might've got them confused somewhere in there, but you get the point, right? And the idea is this, in this one verse, I believe that Jesus, not Calvin, not Luther, not one of the reformers, is the one who makes those doctrines crystal clear because in this one verse, he hits three of them head on. Let me show you. The first one would be this, total depravity. So your next blank, total depravity. How does Jesus teach that? Easy. Look at verse 44. He says, no one can come to me. Just pause right there. That's Jesus teaching total depravity. He said, you can't come. It's impossible for you to come to Christ. You know why? Because you're dead in your trespasses and in your sins. It's because of what Romans 3, verse 9 and 10 says, says we're all under sin. And because we're under sin, there's none righteous, no, not one. And so the idea of total depravity is not necessarily the idea that you're as sinful as you could be. You could be robbing banks. You could be killing people and burying them under your house. I mean, we hear about these wacko stories uh, here. So you could be doing all kinds of stuff. So total depravity doesn't mean that all you do is sin all the time, overtly and outwardly. But in a sense, it does mean that you're incapable of doing good. So even if you are doing something nice, like helping the old lady across the street, it's not considered to be a good work if it's not done in faith. Romans chapter 14, verse 23 says, for whatever is not proceed from faith is sin. So this means if you're not born again, a believer in Christ, that the work that you do, while it could be a reflection of God's common grace, it's not truly a good work because it's not done from a believing heart to glorify God. That makes sense? So the idea of being totally depraved is really the fact that it's impossible. Our flesh is hostile to God, Romans 8, 7. Romans 8, 8 says our flesh cannot please God. So nothing you can do all day long could ever please God because you're totally depraved. It's Ephesians 2 again. You're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The Bible's saying if you're not a Christian, you're following Satan. You're submitting to the prince of the power of the air, a clear reference to Satan, and that you are under the wrath of God 
like the rest of mankind. And so you and I this morning, born in a sinful nature, are totally depraved. And that's why Jesus says here in verse 44, no one can come to me. You can't. Well, thank goodness that we learn other doctrines of grace. The second one here that I believe Christ is teaching is irresistible grace. So we talked about total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace. And this is what he's teaching, I think, when he says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, that is Christ's teaching, irresistible grace. And what basically happens with this verse is everybody argues about what does it mean to draw him? What does that really mean? Well, before I explain that a little bit, let me just give you a definition of irresistible grace. I appreciate James White in his ministry, Alpha and Omega. He's a well-known Reformed theologian. He writes this about irresistible grace. It is, quote, the belief that when God chooses to move in the lives of his elect and bring them for spiritual, from spiritual death to spiritual life, no power in heaven or on earth can stop him from so doing. So that's a great definition of the idea of when God chooses to save somebody from eternity past, he will draw you in and you will not be able to resist and you will not even want to resist because when he draws you, he's regenerating you so that you see your sin, he breathes life into you, and then you're simply responding to a sovereign act of God through his grace is pulling you in. Let me talk to you again about this word draw, because that's where the debate on this verse is like, well, he says he's drawing me. That doesn't sound irresistible. Well, let's talk about that word for just a moment. Let me give you the lexical definition of this word to draw. The BDAG lexicon, which is the most respected Greek lexicon that we have available, defines this word as, quote, to move an object from one area to another in a pulling motion. It means to move an object from one area to another in a pulling motion. Another well-known lexicon called Lu and Nida, it describes this word this way, quote, to drag or to pull by force. In the New American Standard lexicon, it defines the word this way, quote, to drag. In the UBS lexicon, it means to draw, to attract, or to drag, or to haul in. So the question is really this. When he says, no one can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him, what is he saying? Is the word draw mean to woo something or to win something by force? Is it contingent on the will of the one being drawn or dragged? Or is it contingent on the will of the drawer or the dragger? Well, I believe to be drawn is to be dragged. And I believe this primarily because how the word is used in other New Testament passages. Listen to how Peter drug or hauled the fish in in his net. Exact same word used in this context about how they cast their net on the right side of the boat, like Jesus told them, and they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in. Well, let me ask you, when they cast their net and it says they couldn't haul in or drag in, or you could use the word draw in the fish, does that mean that they were wooing the fish? Were they there just asking the fish to come or was it kind of clear the fish have now been caught in the net and they're being hauled in? How about Acts 16, 19? But when her owner saw their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So you have a criminal, Paul and Silas, though they committed no crime, they were accused of a crime. They're dragged in. They were not wooed in. They were dragged in as convicts. How about Acts chapter 21, verse 30, same word. Then all the city was stirred up and all the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. Well, let me ask you the question again. Does the word draw in all of these contexts, both lexically and in its context, does it mean woo or does it mean drag? So why is it? that the translators translate the word as draw. Well, the word draw, again, needs to be understood properly according to its lexical definition and how it's used in context. And I think that Christians in our day and time have been skewed with the analogy of drawing because we simply think of it as like drawing flies to the honey. 
That's the way we tend to think of that word in our vernacular, that there's honey, there's something that's so sweet and tasteful, and the flies come to the honey kind of on their own will. But when you look at it biblically, that just doesn't hold true because you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins, and that's why his grace is irresistible. There's nothing that can stop it, even your own free will, because your own free will is captive to your sin. You would never choose him. He changes your want to. He drags you in. Just to make it clear where I'm at, I believe to draw means to drag. He is actually dragging you to Christ. Now, don't misunderstand. No one comes to heaven kicking and screaming. Everybody who comes to heaven wants to come because God breathes new life into you in the time that he regenerates you. And when he regenerates you, everything else is a response. You were dead but you're made alive. He gives you faith. He gives you repentance. He gives you the ability to believe. And then you come a running. But the initial idea is that you're dragged in. I think the understanding of this verse uh, that we would be helped out by looking at what Dr. R.C. Sproul writes in his definition and explanation of the difference between wooing and dragging. He writes this in his commentary on John, quote, I once took part in a public debate with the head of the New Testament department in a Midwestern seminary. We were debating the doctrine of election, and we eventually came to this text. I pointed out to him that the Greek word draws actually means compel, not entice, or woo. In response, he quoted from an obscure text from the secular literature of ancient Greece, wherein the same Greek word was used to speak of drawing water up from a well. He said, now, Dr. Sproul, when you get water out of a well, do you compel it or drag it out of the well? And everyone in the audience roared with laughter. So I said, this is Dr. Sproul speaking. So I said, well, You've got me there. I didn't even know that text existed in classical Greek, but let me ask you, how do you get water out of a well? Do you stand up there and look down into the shaft of the well and say, here, water, 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 water. You know, here, water, water, water. In other words, is, how do you get water out of a well? You drop a bucket and you draw it up. The water is inert. It is not able to come up on its own unless it's an artesian well. But the water is stuck there at the bottom, and you've got to drag it up. And so the idea here that we're understanding is this word does not mean woo. This word means wins you by his irresistible grace. His grace compels you to come. His grace drags you to the cross. And there, once you see his love for you, you want to come. You, you want to be a part of what God's doing. That's the whole point of irresistible grace is you might resist it for a moment. You might resist it for a year. You might resist it for a lifetime, but somewhere before you die, you will come. You will bow the knee. All those that the Father's given to the Son, they will come. And this gives us an incredible confidence in the God who saves because we understand here from the teaching of Christ, we're totally depraved. Again, no one can come to me. It's only by his irresistible grace, unless the father who sent me draws him. And then that leaves us with the third teaching of these doctrines of grace that Christ gives here. I believe C, your outline, perseverance of the saints, where the we last part we see is this, where he says, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, we've already discussed that, the idea that he will finish what he has started. Jesus teaches us that we're totally depraved, that he saves us only because of his irresistible grace, and that he preserves us to the very end to walk in the truth of Christ, and we will not fall away if we're his, we're his forever. And I want to thank God today that he is sovereign in my salvation. And if you're here today and you're saying, you better thank God that you were dead at the bottom of the well and he drug you up. This is a good doctrine. This is a good for us to understand lest we somehow contemporize the idea that somehow Christ is just wooing us and not truly drawing us. And so as we head out of here today, let me just give you a couple of questions to think about that will help you recap the main parts of this sermon. Number one, how does a future restoration, excuse me, resurrection, how does a future resurrection in Christ impact 
the way that you live today? If we know that he will raise us up on that last day, does that help you live with a little bit more confidence that you're his? If you know that he will raise you up on that last day, does it help you live with a little bit more urgency that at any moment he could come back and he will save you, but it ought to affect the way we live. It ought to cause us every moment of every day to live for Christ. Number two, are there any areas of unbelief or grumbling that need to be rooted out of your heart? Maybe you're here this morning and somehow when I started talking about the LGBT thing, you're still just a little bit, you know what, that just kind of irks me a little bit. Or maybe there's some other sin that the Bible clearly calls sin and that you think shouldn't be a sin and it just irks you a little bit. Let me tell you something. Stop grumbling and complaining against the word of God. The perspicuity of scripture makes it abundantly clear. It's not me that you'll have to argue with. It's God. And it doesn't end well for those who grumbled against God in the desert. So let me invite you today to put your own thinking aside when it comes to man's secular thinking and be renewed with the word of God that washes over your mind. And as the Holy Spirit is your teacher, you will come to love every single doctrine of the Bible. You will come to love every single law of God. We wonder sometimes how David could say, oh, how I long for your law. As we're washed with the word of God and the truth of God, you start to see every single part of your Bible as beautiful, as important, and as something you want to live up to with God's help. Number three, if you were wooed to Christ instead of drawn or dragged, your last blank there is the word dragged. So if you were wooed to Christ instead of drawn or dragged to Christ, would you have come? Let me ask you this morning, if it was wooing and not drawing slash dragging, would you have come to Christ? And the answer is no. You would have never come because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I'm so glad we have a Christ who drags us to himself. And thus is the clarity of Christ's teaching that no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on that last day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just dive in again, Christ's sermon here in John 6, as he continues to go on and on about being the bread of life, about doing his father's will, about drawing Yes, even dragging all those that the Father has given to the Son. Thank you that he will lose not one. Thank you that this day we can be encouraged with the doctrines of the teaching of Christ as we see here so clearly our total depravity, as we see here so clearly the beauty of your irresistible grace, as we see so clearly the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And so, God, may we be blessed today. If there be someone here who's still struggling through assurance of salvation, I pray that you would enable that young man, that young woman to see and take you at your word. I pray, God, that we would be confident, not in our life, but in the life of Christ, that we would be secure, not in our coming so much as in Christ drawing or dragging us to himself. Thank you for eternal security Thank you that you have told us that all of those who are in Christ will be raised up on that last day. So whether we live a hundred years or if we die tomorrow, God, may we take confidence in that you are our security, you are our treasure, you are our inheritance, that the lines have truly fallen for us in pleasant places. It's in your presence where we find joy. So we come to Christ today to confess our love for you and to just think about your incredible, undying love for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.